Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine, advancing medicine through precision diagnostics and novel therapies. Your host is Dr. Lee Friedman. Endovascular techniques may benefit patients with a wide variety of disorders. What are the latest techniques in this rapidly expanding specialty? I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me today is Dr. Benjamin Jackson, Assistant Professor of Surgery and Radiology in the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks very much for having me, Dr. Friedman. Well, this is an exciting field, and I've seen that we're doing more abdominal aortic aneurysms with an endovascular technique. When is this indicated, and how exactly is this done? Approximately 15 years ago, the FDA approved the first stent graft device for the repair of abdominal aortic aneurysms. And that device was designed to treat infrarenal abdominal aortic aneurysms. So the stent graft was sealed below the renal arteries. In the ensuing years, five or six other devices have also been approved by the FDA. And most infrarenal abdominal aortic aneurysms today are treated with stent grafts. And most abdominal aortic aneurysms are infrarenal in nature. But over the last couple of years, we've seen an expansion of the endovascular techniques and the endovascular stent grafting for abdominal aortic aneurysms to juxtarenal aneurysms. So there's currently one FDA-approved fenestrated device where there are holes in the device so that the renal arteries can be accommodated. And in fact, the uh, superior mesenteric artery and celiac axis can also be accommodated by holes in the device, which are custom located and machined. And then small covered stents go out into each of the visceral branch vessels. And we do a lot of these fenestrated aortic stent graft repairs at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Coming down the pike and being investigated in clinical trials in which we're involved, are also off-the-shelf fenestrated abdominal aortic stent graft devices where we can actually pull from a number of configurations on the shelf or on consignment so that we can treat, for instance, emergency cases or ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysms in the realm of infrarenal and juxtarenal and even aneurysms which are involving the renal arteries in the aneurysm disease, and so they have to be sealed at or above the renal arteries. So that's kind of uh, pretty exciting for us. That is fascinating. And, and the custom devices, is that based off angiogram information and then it's, it's custom fashion for the particular patient? That's right. So currently there's one FDA-approved device, which is a custom-made fenestrated stent graft device. In that device, the patient undergoes a CT angiogram and the physician designs a fenestrated stent graft. It's made by an American company in Australia and takes about three weeks to manufacture, about a week to ship to the United States and then about two weeks to clear customs. So in general, we can't use that device except with a four to six week kind of anticipatory preparation stage, basically, before we can get the device and treat the patient. But like I said, kind of in the coming years, there will be FDA-approved devices which are modular and off-the-shelf and don't need to be customized for patients. And with those latter devices, I would imagine it's somewhat trickier to get it placed in the right spot so that you do have the openings for the renal arteries, et cetera? Companies, a couple of companies actually have come up with pretty novel, and largely these novel developments and devices have been championed or invented by vascular surgeons, physicians, and then they've kind of collaborated with companies in bringing these things to market. But the most common configuration of these stent grafts has kind of a fenestration or hole for the renal and visceral arteries, which can move around a little bit. It's sewn loosely to the remainder of the stent graft or attached loosely to the remainder of stent graft. So there's a little bit of play in it, and that's why the companies can kind of develop three or four configurations of the stent graft to fit almost any 
juxta renal aneurysm out there. If your renal arteries are separated by a lot of distance along the course of the aorta, or if they're kind of in a really weird or unusual anatomic configuration, these off-the-shelf devices won't work. But for 70 to 90% of patients' anatomies who have juxtarenal or pararenal abdominal aortic aneurysms, these devices are going to probably work pretty well. Again, the jury's out because these are now pivotal trials of these devices going towards FDA approval, and it's possible that the -the off-the-shelf devices won't kind of fulfill their promise. But our anticipation is is that at least one of a number of devices under clinical trial now will kind of come to fruition and be available to patients in the coming years. That is very exciting. Well, let's shift our focus to the carotids and atherosclerosis in the carotids. I know endarterectomy is is somewhat controversial in terms of indications and all. Are there endovascular techniques for the carotids? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So as you know, Lee, there's very good evidence that we can prevent strokes in patients who have carotid artery stenosis by performing traditional open surgery, that's carotid endarterectomy. And over the last 10 to 15 years, it's become pretty clear that we can also afford patients the same benefit by performing carotid artery stenting, which is a less invasive procedure and has a lower risk of complications, such as heart attack, perioperatively at the time of or after carotid endarterectomy or carotid stenting. So at Penn and at the University of Pennsylvania, we perform both carotid endarterectomy and carotid stenting the newest and kind of latest data on carotid stenting was published in the CREST trial, that's CREST, in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years ago. And that demonstrated that for both symptomatic and asymptomatic patients, carotid artery stenting has very good outcomes, which are in almost all groups comparable to the outcomes of carotid endarterectomy. The only caveat is, is that patients who are symptomatic, who have symptomatic carotid stenosis, had a stroke or a mini-stroke or a trans- transient ischemic attack, do a little bit better with carotid endarterectomy than carotid stenting. And that's probably because with carotid endarterectomy, we clamp the carotid. And so little pieces of the carotid plaque stand less chance of breaking off and going to the brain than when we stent the carotid. Because when we stent the carotid, even though we use little filters to protect the brain from distal embolization, we have to get that little filter past the plaque first. And little pieces of the plaque can embolize while we're getting that filter up there to protect the brain. The other group, which doesn't do quite as well with carotid stenting as they do with carotid endarterectomy, is people over 80. So paradoxically, even though you think that kind of older people might do better with a less invasive procedure, patients who are over 80 don't do as well with carotid artery stenting as with endarterectomy. But the good thing is in our practice is that the vascular surgeons at the University of Pennsylvania, including myself, we actually are all qualified and credentialed to do both carotid artery stenting and carotid endarterectomy. And so on a patient-by-patient basis, we select or recommend or help the patient select kind of the best intervention for them. If you're just tuning in, you are listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and I'm speaking with Dr. Benjamin Jackson about advances in endovascular techniques. Dr. Jackson, why don't we turn to the venous side? When do we use an IVC filter to prevent pulmonary embolism, and what type of anticoagulation and duration do we see with these devices? So this is one of my uh, personal areas of uh, research interest and clinical interest. IVC filters are very useful in patients who, for a short-term or medium-term or even long-term, can't or don't want to be on blood thinners, but are at increased risk of developing blood clots in their legs or their pelvis, and therefore at increased risk of those blood clots breaking off and going to their lungs and causing life-threatening pulmonary embolism. And from a small small historical context, we got really interested in using intravenous filters for PE prevention in the bariatric surgery population at Penn because these are generally younger, pretty healthy people 
whose only real medical problem is that they're overweight. And if one of these patients were to have a surgery and was relatively immobile afterwards and suffered a pulmonary embolism and died after an elective surgery, that would really be kind of a travesty. So along with the bariatric surgeons, we decided to kind of do everything we could to prevent pulmonary embolism. And therefore, we have a very aggressive approach to putting in filters prior to bariatric surgery and in other groups too, in patients who have suffered traumatic injuries and are relatively immobile and have broken bones or at increased risk of blood clots, but again, can't be anticoagulated because they've just undergone surgery or they have a closed head injury or they have other risk factors for bleeding. So our division of vascular surgery at Penn are again, very aggressive about putting intravenous filters in. The FDA very recently has come out with a statement advocating the retrieval of all IVC filters that we can retrieve technically in patients who don't need them anymore, who have kind of gotten past this area or this time period of increased DDT risk and increased pulmonary embolism risk. And, and most of the patients, not all, but most of the patients that we take care of and who receive IVC filters fall into this category. So patients who have bariatric surgery, a month or two after the surgery, they've lost weight, they're doing well, they're walking around, they're mobile again, they can be anticoagulated if they, God forbid, do develop another blood clot. And so according to the FDA, those filters should come out. And we have very good success getting these filters out and a very good track record of getting the patients back to take these filters out. So it's kind of a point of pride at Penn that we do take out all these filters and we have a very good technical success rate getting them out to the point where we now see a fair number of patients every month who've had filters placed at other institutions and their physicians, whether an interventional radiologist or a vascular surgeon, has had trouble retrieving the filter. We take them to the operating room and again, using percutaneous minimally invasive techniques, we're able to retrieve the filter. And so the patient can go on for the rest of their life, you know, the next 40 or 50 years of their life without having this filter in, which down the road can cause some complications. And that's what the FDA was concerned about and continues to be concerned about. Well, that's fantastic because I, I would think, at least in theory, that the filter left in could be a nidus for clot formation or lead to distal edema and things of that nature. Is, is that why we take them out? Yeah. There's three complications that I worry about with IVC filters. So when I see somebody in the office and I'm either going to put a filter in them or, I, or, or I'm advocating taking a filter that they already have in and out, I tell them that the importance of getting the thing out after we've put it in amounts to basically the prevention of three serious long-term complications of IVC filter placement or retention. First one, as you mentioned, is that we think that the filter can predispose to narrowing of the inferior vena cava or clotting of the inferior vena cava, and therefore that patient might get leg swelling and chronic venous insufficiency as a result of cable narrowing or cable occlusion. The second problem that we worry about is that some of these filters can erode through the wall of the cava and erode into adjacent structure. Mm. So I've taken filters out of people whose filters have eroded into their duodenum, into their kidney, into their aorta. And actually, most of those patients have been asymptomatic, and it's not 100% clear that we really need to take those filters out. But in order to prevent problems down the line, we generally recommend getting those filters out. And even in those cases, most of those filters that have eroded into adjacent organs can be taken out in a minimally invasive approach. And then finally, filters that are left in for a long time can possibly embolize to the heart or lungs, or the filters themselves can fracture and a leg or a strut of the filter can break off and embolize to the heart or lungs. And it's our feeling that mostly filters that are now off the market and weren't as robust designed as the filters that we're using now are the ones that were responsible for those events. 
And those events are well documented in the FDA databases, and that's probably a lot of what led the FDA to recommend us getting out all retrievable IVC filters after a reasonable period of time. I'm not that worried about the current filters that we're using, breaking apart and embolizing to the heart or lungs, but it is kind of a concern. And, and because of prior medical legal efforts to kind of hold doctors and companies accountable for these filters that broke and embolized, there is kind of a significant amount of attention and concern to that problem. But again, I, I don't worry about it that much with kind of today's devices. Very interesting. And then maybe one last topic. I, I hate when I have a patient who has diabetic ulcer. They've got peripheral vascular disease. It can be so limiting and, and difficult. Are there endovascular techniques in that kind of situation? Yeah, absolutely. So we have just recently opened up a new wound care center at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. We've always had wound care centers at some of the affiliated hospitals, but this is the first time we've had one actually at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital grounds and campus. And what we accomplish there is a multidisciplinary approach to the care of diabetic wounds, especially diabetic lower extremity wounds. So a patient can see a plastic surgeon, an endocrinologist, a vascular surgeon, and an orthopedic surgeon all in the same room on the same day with a minimum of fuss and hassle. And all the tests can be accomplished on that day or with kind of relatively easy follow-up for the patient. And that's very important because the care of diabetic wounds is, by its very nature, multidisciplinary and oftentimes very difficult. So from a vascular surgery perspective, we take care of a lot of those patients. And a lot of those patients can be treated either with old-fashioned surgical bypass, which is still the kind of standard of care from the standpoint of revascularization of patients' lower extremities, but also more and more with endovascular and minimally invasive techniques. There's uh, recently stents for the lower extremities, which are uh, FDA-approved for deployment in the popliteal artery itself, and a lot of patients with diabetes have very distal disease, so stents and endovascular interventions, which are appropriate for the small vessels at the knee and below the knee, are very important and potentially very beneficial for patients with diabetes. And then there are other kind of approaches both that the plastic surgeons take as far as pre-flap reconstruction of diabetic wounds that the orthopedists and podiatrists take with regard to management of chronic foot wounds and osteomyelitis, and that the medical doctors, both the endocrinologists and the infectious disease experts, can kind of help us out with and, and thereby help the patients out with. So that's pretty exciting that we have this wound care center, and we're very dedicated to taking care of diabetic patients and their wounds and trying to save their limbs. Well, I very much want to thank Dr. Benjamin Jackson for outlining for us some of the newer techniques for a variety of conditions that can be approached in an endovascular way and highlighting particularly some of the very special programs available at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, ben, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Lee. I uh, very much enjoyed speaking with you today. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. To download this podcast or to access others in the series, please visit reachmd.com pen and visit Penn Physician Link, an exclusive program that helps referring physicians connect with Penn. Here you can find education resources, information about our expedited referral process, and communication tools. To learn more, visit www.penmedicine.org slash physician link. Thank you for listening.